on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Today on Soundtrack Alley, Eric Woods and I will discuss the phenomenal score to Aliens by James Horner. We'll discuss briefly some of the practical effects of the film and lots about the score for the film. So sit back, relax, enjoy the show because it begins now. host randy andrews and with me is eric woods eric when was the first time you saw aliens i saw aliens when i was probably 10 or 11 it was on television and it could have been later than that i'm not sure what when the tv premiere of aliens was um but that's i think they decided that they were going to release the special edition um as the television premiere. So it had all these extra scenes. I didn't know they were extra, extra scenes. However, what I don't remember is seeing the deleted scene with Newt and her parents that came much later. Um, I had, I had no idea that that scene existed. Um, but I do remember the television, uh, version that I was watching that had the century guns, which is just an incredible, um, action sequence and, and part of the film that I can't believe that they, they got rid of because I remember then eventually watching this on home video and going, where are the guns? Where are those cool guns from the, ho- from the hallway, you know, mowing down all the aliens. So, uh, I saw this, yeah, very young. And at the time I wasn't really accustomed to horror films. And I consider this a horror film. It, it is definitely a horror film with, with you know, parts of science fiction and, and action, of course. But it's just scared me to death. And I had never seen the first Alien film. So I think I had an idea about chestbursters. And again, I'm not sure whether I saw Spaceballs before I saw Aliens. Because Aliens, because I remember Spaceballs being like the first time I ever saw that happening. And I didn't really get the joke. So... Yeah, seeing this movie, the the atmosphere, the 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 sound, and of course James Horner's score just stuck in my mind, and that stayed with me for a very very long time. And then when I finally got to hear the album many years later, when I was uh, in high school, like one of my last years in high school, I found the album in the library. I was like, yeah, those that's the sound I remember from when I first saw this film. So. It gave me nightmares for weeks. I'm so it sorry. Was, 
Well, it, you know that it just means it was a good movie. Yeah, uh, my 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 imagination definitely took control, and I, I was actually kind of obsessed with the the xenomorphs and the style, and I was obsessed with then James Cameron because then I eventually saw the Terminator, and just followed his career and loved the Abyss. I I, I think I love everything uh, that he's done, uh, from Terminator on. Piranha Two, not so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, seeing it on TV and seeing it, you know, in the special edition was, was quite a, a watershed moment for me for, for movie watching. Cause I'd never seen anything like it up to that point. And, um, so when I do watch it and I recently just showed it to my son who was, uh, interested in seeing the alien series, he's 14. I showed him the special edition, but of course I felt that you have to skip seeing newt and her family on the planet because i don't think that you should see anything of uh of the planet until ripley actually gets there like i don't think you should know anything about them and i'm glad that they cut that out of the out of the theatrical presentation you should know nothing about what's happening there that like what whether there are families or whether there are aliens there it should be a complete mystery to us and to ripley and we should discover what happens as we uh, follow the Marines and, and Ripley to um, uh, to the planet uh, uh, LV426. Uh, and so, yeah, so he loved it. He thought it was great. So, yeah, I skipped the new part, but I kept the, the guns and I told him, I said, can you believe they took this out of the movie? And he's like, no, this is this is really cool. So, it, again, it's, um, and I know I'm really long-winded here, but it's really neat watching movies through my children's eyes. And I, we're just introducing them to a whole bunch of great movies that, you know, I remember enjoying when I was growing up. And so getting to show him alien and aliens back to back was just an incredible night. Cause he, I think he's, it's, it's tough to impress teenagers, especially. And, and he's seen a, a lot of, uh, you know, nothing, nothing surprises him. Um, but alien and aliens really worked and that was a lot of fun. So I kind of felt like, you know, watching it through his eyes was the way I felt back when I was 10 or 11, watching it for the first time on TV. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I watched Aliens before I actually saw Alien. Um, I know it was on cable TV, and I was actually really enthralled with the film, how there was, like, conspiracy and just everything with the film, the production quality... Uh, how much action there was. I enjoyed everything, even the terror. And it was a horror film to me, but it also, you know, with the aliens, it's sci-fi. And James Cameron directing, I came to expect some fancy things with his sets, with amazing work, with effects, and, you know, different things things surrounding his ideas um because i'd seen james other james cameron stuff like i saw terminator and um it just it impressed me uh at the level that james cameron could direct something and so i was amazed how much i actually enjoyed the film um it even shown that uh whole introspective feeling of the corporation which was the Wayland corporation and how they wanted the aliens for 
military and weapons development. And it was just crazy. You know, it, it really showed the alien universe was broad and vast. And um, later on, I mean, this is, we can discuss this movie at some point in the future, but later on when I saw Alien versus Predator, um, it really illustrated to me how they tried to tie things together in that universe because Lance Henriksen played Bishop in Alien versus Predator. And I found that unique and interesting. <laughs> so uh, that can be for another tale. <laughs> but Aliens was truly unique, and I really enjoyed how James Horner did the score, too, because the score really stands on its own in this movie. And it it made a greater impact on me for this one rather than Alien because they had chopped it so badly in Alien. You know, they didn't have much music for Alien. But we talked about that when we discussed Alien, so. Yeah, it's it's amazing how, I mean, up to this point, even with Aliens, it, it's just how much disrespect the music does get. And even though the music is chopped to bits in Aliens as well, like, I think there's only three cues that play in its entirety where they're supposed to be. And it just, um, and, and again, not trying to give too much credit to the filmmakers for chopping it up and, and making it work, but it it did work. I think that if you're watching the movie, you don't get a sense that the score is chopped up. With the exception of a, like, and there are there are cues that repeat and repeat and repeat, but you don't get a sense that they are repeating until you get to the point where Bishop's countdown is replete, repeated again, uh, once during where it's supposed to play, and then during the finale, which takes place over the resolution that James Horner wrote that eventually made its way into Die Hard. Um, but I think that uh, it's a testament to those who were editing the music that it worked and that James Horner was still able to get an Academy Award nomination for his work. And I don't really hold um, the Academy or, or music branch um, all that highly anymore. Um, and that is, it's not a recent thing, but um, it just, it's a, it, the whole thing with the Oscars is a popularity contest, but and especially the way they got everything wrong in 1986 anyway. Like, <laughs> Ennio Marconi probably should have won the Academy Award that year for the mission, but but he didn't, but I digress. But Aliens, but the fact that Aliens, you know, this action science fiction horror movie, um, a sequel to one of the great horror films of all time, managed to get so much recognition. And that's a rare thing. It doesn't happen a lot where these genre pictures are, are, are held so highly by, you know, the members of the, the Academy who are kind of snooty and full of themselves. So, yeah. So I was really pleased to hear not only of Sigourney Weaver's nomination, but also of James Horner's nomination and be acknowledged for a genre picture and a genre score. And 
again, the fact that it was so chopped up that it still actually worked in the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And one thing that I thought was interesting was even with how the execs through Fox and when they saw the cut of the film, like an early cut of it, they had complained that it looked like all the money had been spent on uh, sets rather than special effects. And Gail and Hurd took great delight in telling them that the majority of the sets were miniatures or optical effects. And so they were able to fool these execs into thinking that they spent a ton of money on sets and stuff, even though the sets were, a lot of them were miniatures and, and everything. And it's like, oh yeah, we pulled the wool over your eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's <laughs> oh, this, then, there, well, there's this yeah. without, well, you're talking about the, the sets and how impressive they look and, and, and not in the miniatures and the optical effects. Like the one scene where they actually um, are making their way into the hive and it's this great shot uh, where they um, they tilt down from the ceiling and you're seeing all of, um, I don't know what they call it, the, like their cocoon um, or their hive, and it comes down to the to the Marines as they're walking in, and it's just so enormous, but it's an incredible optical effect with a matte painting. But you don't get a sense that that's what it is. It's so seamless and so well done. Like, And I was going to mention to you, like back... Back when I saw it for the first time, nothing looked out of place. Everything looked real. Uh, nothing seemed like a special effect. There's nothing in this movie that takes me out and goes, hmm, that's kind of phony. There are some iffy optical effects with uh, the dropship. It's a, little, it's, a little, it's a little weird, especially during the, the when they nuke um, the facility at the end. Um. But besides that, everything in this movie just looks like everything was shot in camera. And it's it's pretty flawless. So that was something that's really interesting about the movie was how uh, it was just everything looked so good. And even the locations they used, when they were actually using locations, they actually used a um, power plant in Action West London. And it was like riddled with asbestos. So they had a team clean it up. And then, so they were able to take, uh, you know, do their filming, but they kept on having to take tests to make sure the air was clear of contamination because of asbestos. And, the action location, it turned out to be better atmospheric quality than Pinewood Studios itself. So what are we saying about Pinewood Studios having asbestos poisoning? So <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny uh, to learn that. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because a lot of the... I mean, what I notice is the the scenes where it's raining and obviously that's all done within the studio. It just looks so uncomfortable and, and, and knowing how many times James Cameron would shoot something until it's absolutely picture perfect. Um, but again, I was going to mention that even that none of that looks phony. And I actually thought that that was shot like outside somewhere 
And when you look at the behind the scenes footage, uh, the backgrounds are just basically painted. Um, they're just using, uh, you know, depth of field tricks to make it seem like it's a much more expansive location. And, and uh, yeah, and the miniature work is, is absolutely incredible. And James Cameron, um, even in uh, films like Terminator and Terminator 2 and The Abyss and just the way that he used miniatures and, and because he was able to, you know, for this, the, the, the first lander that crashes um, in this film, uh, you know, it, it's a real model tumbling and crashing and coming towards camera and they're using um, back projection, uh, you know, having the actors in front of a screen while that's actually happening. It's, uh, it, you know, it's sort of the stuff that they're doing in the Mandalorian right now, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, right. it's, 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 not to, it's not as advanced, but, you know, to do the, um, the back projection technology and getting it right um, is tough to do. And yeah, it's, you know, James Cameron, as much as he's a perfectionist and can be awful on set, he is a craftsman. And that goes back to his days with Roger Corman. But, you know, he wants to get things perfect and make things look perfect. And, and you'd have to admire that, um, even though everything that's been said about him is that he's a total jerk to work um, you know, with on, on, on set, but you know, he just wants to make the best movie that he can make. And, and he does time and time again. Yeah. And that is illustrated by some of the models that they created. Like they used a full size puppet for the queen and then miniatures were used. And then also like, I found it unique how they, I know this is skipping toward the end of the movie, but, uh, the aliens that were in the tunnels that were crawling through the air ducts and stuff that it was used, it was filmed using a vertical shaft with the camera at the bottom and the alien actor lowered headfirst on a cable. So it almost looked like they were filmed backwards or upside down. Well, he, from what I remember, they wanted to get, they wanted to make these uh, aliens much more nimble. And, and move a lot quicker. And uh, I'm pretty sure that I can remember him hiring um, uh, people from the ballet or dancers because of the way they move. And so, and again, I always thought that they moved this fast. And so going back to watch Alien, you realize that they're not very, you know, the alien is not very quick. Um, so... To make them more agile makes them more dangerous. And so, you know, dressing up dancers in these costumes and then, yeah, doing, you know, uh, creating these weird um, filming techniques and filming angles to make them seem like they're they're far more agile just makes it more ta more terrifying. And the fact that there's more of them um, is just, uh, I mean, it's so... <laughs> I mean, the film is aliens, you know, it's more than two. Um, but it's just amazing how, yeah, a, a, a group of them is just way more terrifying, I think, than the single one lurking around the ship in the first one, even though that one's very scary and, it's, and that's filmed in a different way. But just, I mean, having hundreds of them coming at you and then the sound of the, the locator beeping was, oh man, that stayed with me my whole life. That sound is terrifying. Um, and just seeing, you know, that in the middle of the movie where, you know, they just, they're, they're stuck in that one 
uh, room and they're, they're all over the place. You know, they're right on top of us. How's that possible? And it just, you know, the screen just turns basically white with, you know, blinking aliens all over the place. I, it's, it's so good. It is such a good film. And, and it's, yeah, it's amazing that James Cameron pulled it off, especially for his second big project. Yeah, with James Cameron, it was really phenomenal how he got so much uh, things together. Uh, He hired people to create miniatures. He created, he had the um, full-scale animatronic um, model for the queen and then the small-scale miniatures, like even for the eggs or different animatronic things. Um, I thought it was interesting in some of the notes I found. One of the quotes was, as such an animatronic had never been before constructed, the concept was first tested with a crude mock-up, affectionately called the garbage bag queen by Winston Steam due to the black trash bags used to cover it. And... So the final queen was constructed in England and mountain, mounted on a crane. It was kept out of shot and then out of the, like, you couldn't see the whole queen clearly in the full shot because of clever editing, which was James Cameron's doing. And so they had made, like, two of them, of, or of the heads, and different people were inside the puppets to control some of the movements that uh, the queen had. And I thought that was pretty amazing. And the queen was a very complex alien to try to look at and try to maneuver, but it all looked very fluid. It all looked real. Like it wasn't like too choppy or anything. And and of course, at that time, even in 1986, the technology was increasing better and better to have a better, you know, like animatronic or better puppetry to have the creature move faster. Yeah, and that's a testament to Stan Winston. And we talked about him a few shows back on, on Jurassic Park. And you know how he created the the life sized dinosaurs, and how he made them work perfectly. And there really is, there's nothing like filming something in camera. And you know, there's a queen in Alien versus Predator who doesn't look half as impressive, and it's a CGI queen, you know, running around and chasing them. It doesn't look anywhere near as impressive as as this one. And, and I will say that, you know, once the queen has um, separated herself from her sack and starts running after Ripley and Newt at the end of the film, um, her clunky movements, I think, adds to the realism. Um, you Yes, you can tell it's a whole bunch of puppeteers trying to move this thing. But, th- you know, the, a thing of that size and, and, and that frail, actually would move that way. And you're right, there's clever editing. And I think that's what makes it special, but everything is in camera. And even, you know, the fight between 
uh, Ripley and the alien later on, um, even those miniatures that they're using um, are just absolutely spectacular and match to the, to the full-sized uh, machines and an alien queen that you eventually see. So, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's probably easier to say, hey, we're going to do this all on the computer, and then you have complete and utter control over how this thing works. But there is nothing like seeing any something in in camera and and filming it there and having the actors actually act to something that is there. And that's what makes it so much more impressive. You know, that whole scene with Ripley in the showdown with the alien queen as she picks up Newt and she's aiming the, the flamethrower towards one of the eggs, right? And there's that stare down that they have there. It's great because that's all there. There's no, there's no fakery. There's no, you know, optical effects. There's no, it's all there. And it just feels absolutely real and makes us as an audience believe that Ripley is there facing this enormous alien and you have no idea how in the world she's going to get out of it. And it's so utterly impressive. And as I said, the craftsmanships, the artistry, the creativity on aliens is second to none. It's a sensationally well-produced motion picture. Oh, and I totally agree. Because Stan Winston, he got his first Oscar after getting having this movie made i mean that's pretty cool because dan winston was behind so much of it and so much work that he did made the movie such a success yeah the guy's a legend and you know we talked about him in great detail before and you know he saved so many movies with his work just legendary work and you know, there's so many people that you know look up to him working in the industry now, and it's just too bad that he he died so young, um, because he was just he's he was one of the best and worked on some of the best pictures, and he improved every single movie um, that he worked on. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that I found interesting, I mean. This is kind of a testament as to the progression even of how they um, used practical effects from, say, the first movie with the chestbuster scene and then with the second movie having um, Bishop be ripped in two. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen Aliens before listening to this recording... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Spoiler alert, yeah. uh, Bishop gets ripped. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a brilliant sequence, too. Oh, it is. But it was also interesting. Lance Hendrickson got food poisoning because of the milk and yogurt combination that he had to spew out. And he was dealing with hot lights, and uh, it was a bacterial nightmare that he was dealing with. So I feel for him that he was dealing with that, but, uh, it turned out amazing. Oh, it did. It's one of those classic scares when you think the movie's done and it's actually not. And I, you know, and I forget sometimes when I watch it again, you know, I'm just thinking they've nuked the, the, the site from orbit. 
Well, actually, they haven't. It's the, the facility's essentially blown up by itself. Um, but, you know, and I love James Horner just calming things down as everybody's getting off of the, uh, the ship. And all of a sudden, uh, yeah, uh, Bishop is, you know, stabbed through the back and just torn to shreds. And it's, uh, it's pretty nasty. It's a gnarly scene, but it's, but it's, it's so good. And it sets up just one of the greatest uh final boss battles i think in cinema history and um it's so yeah and and lance hendrickson is uh he plays a great bishop and um he's he's perfectly cast for for that role and you know not only him but just making a brief moment to talk about a couple of the cast members so Janet Goldstein's character of Vasquez inspired the character Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation. So Vasquez set the precedence for um, Tasha Yar. I mean, I can't remember her actual name. Denise Crosby. On the show. Denise Crosby, that's it. Uh she learned from Vasquez, which was Janet Goldstein, and Goldstein initially was considered for the part of Tasha Yar. And then she went to make a brief appearance in Star Trek Generations, which, of course, we will cover here on the show. And then Bill Paxton, who played Hudson, inspired the character Guy Fliegman from Galaxy Quest, which also starred, of course, Sigourney Weaver. So I thought that was kind of fun because Bill Paxton's character of Hudson was like he did all the best lines. Yeah, he did <laughs> in Aliens. Horrible. Like like game over, man. Game yeah. over. Yeah. And uh well, I mean, it, you know, so the, many. The, the, him and Vasquez are always at each other's throats. Yeah. Um, the whole. I think um, they were like verbally sparring. Oh yeah, like you, you know? know, hey Vasquez, does anybody um, does anybody mistake you for a man? And she comes back to him and says, "No, but does anybody um, you know, mistake you for a man?" And I loved <laughs> yeah. that line because Vasquez isn't <laughs> taking any crap from anybody. No. Um, and she's an absolute badass in this in this film, and um, I just like how. You know whether you're male, female, it's 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 equal here. Nobody, nobody really cares. And um, yeah, Bill Paxton, uh, this is a career making film for him. Um, and 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 it's funny. My 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 dad can stand Bill Paxton. <laughs> I love him from in this. True Lies. That's it. That's True Lies. True Lies <laughs> absolutely ruined Bill Paxton for my dad. Bill Paxton plays that role in true lies so brilliantly. I mean, he's absolutely perfect and should have got awards for that role alone. But my dad has a tough time watching anything else that Bill Paxton's in without seeing him as his true lies, uh, character, which is too bad because Bill Paxton's an incredible, was an incredible, um, dramatic actor as well, but he played so many great goofball characters as well. Uh, but I mean, yeah, that that the whole True Lies character was obviously written for him. Um, but there's nothing more iconic 
than some of the stuff that he says and does in uh, in Aliens. And and I think that he also represents kind of us as well. Um, not so much in his actions. He's of being the everyman. Yeah, he's an everyman who's scared to death of what's happening, and and we can definitely connect with him, which is probably why he's so uh, memorable um, in the movie. Yeah, I agree. It's like he's one of the few characters that you can remember easily. Now, of course, you know, you also have Paul Reiser in the film. And at this point, I don't think he was doing comedy yet. I don't think. No, I think this is one of his first roles or first like major okay. roles that um cuz he went on to remember. do that comedy show with Helen Hunt. Correct. Mad about you. But anyway, with Paul Reiser, he played an excellent conspiracy player like in the film. He played a perfect corporate evil villain. Because he was one that didn't mind setting something up to have something else happen and not get his hands dirty, but still be involved in that act. And that's in the med bay. Yeah. And you don't get a sense of him being that type of person, like the corporate person. Like you don't really, well, I guess you would. Maybe if you saw Alien, you might get an idea that this is, this guy's going to turn on everybody, but it doesn't really um, telegraph itself it, until he starts discussing about, uh, you know, when they talk about nuking the, the, the facility from orbit. And then he's like, whoa, hold on a minute. This is a multi-million dollar installation. But then you don't think he's going to screw them all over. And I think that his his plot point is probably the only bit from Alien that kind of crosses over into Alien 3 where the, the company is tr- going to screw these people over. And they're sending them in on false pretenses. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, this was Riser's first major uh, theatrical role. I think he was also, he had a bit part in Beverly Hills Cop, but this is like the first thing, major thing that that riser did and he's a he's a odd selection um i'm really odd um and well i mean there's another interesting bit of uh casting where uh james uh, remar was supposed to be playing hicks and i think he oh. was and i think he yeah, was he was on set yeah um but then in had fact, to i think only one scene uh is his back yeah. Like you see the back of his head. Right. But everything else is the other guy. What was his name? What, Michael Bean? Yes, Michael Bean. That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And it'd be tough for me to see him in that role, especially, I mean, I I just actually just recently watched 48 Hours and I thought uh, James uh, Remar was uh, really... Um, I don't know. I hated that movie anyway. Um, Cause it was just so mean and overly violent and racist and just not funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but oh, yeah. he plays more of a, well, it's funny cause I then saw him in, 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 uh, he played then in, in Dexter as Dexter's dad. And he had, he was very much more, um, much more compassionate. Whereas a lot of the roles that he was playing and he kind of played this, this 
baddie type of character. And I'm not sure whether I can just sympathize with him as I did with the way Michael Bean played the character. And of course, that's, you know, in hindsight, you just kind of like, of course, who else could play Hicks other than Michael Bean? Um, but I, it's, I think Michael Bean seems more like a, a more relatable uh, character for the audience and actor. And, but I could also see James Cameron being extremely worried about using him um, again after coming out of uh, Terminator. Um, but, you know, he, he called him at the last second and, you know, Bean said, sure, I'll be there um, the following Friday. And, um, and he, he made it. So um, great bit of, uh, you know, it was lucky for him. It was, it was a great, it was a great role for, for Michael Bean. And I, I liked him a lot. Well, I mean, then what, then the next, the next film that James Cameron makes beans in it again. Oh yeah. <laughs> He's in the abyss. This time he plays the bad guy. Um, and then I think he had his, uh, guest role cut from Terminator two. And that's it. I think he, I don't think he was in true lies at all. So, um, but yeah, he made a, mean a pretty good go of it with James Cameron. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he could have been considered a favorite actor of Cameron's, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. What do you think we uh, start getting into the score? Sure. We should have fun with this one. So what I learned something interesting when I listened to this score. Now this is this is no offense to the score whatsoever. Um, it's just something that I noticed because I listened to the score three times before I even started writing my notes. It seemed like there was a lot of um, wrath of Khan in aliens not that that was dogging on james horner at all but it seemed like there was a lot of reuse of material from star trek 2 wrath of khan what's your thoughts well yeah you're um and i'm not arguing you know that no that wasn't the case and you know he didn't have much time to deal with it but still Honestly, you're not seeing anything that's hasn't been said before, and 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 for those that have followed James Horner's career, those that like him, those that don't like him, you know James Horner's mo throughout his entire career was, you know, he either quote unquote steals from classical music, or constantly reuses music that he had already used in other films and repurposes them. In other in other films, changes note here and there, maybe an orchestration, but you know you can hear uh, the theme from Braveheart in in Bicentennial Man. Uh, his genius motif, which started off in Sneakers, could be heard in Bobby Fischer in Bicentennial Man in in A Beautiful Mind. Um, there's uh, and I could I could see why James Horner might go back to his catalog in this film and it's not like he hadn't done he didn't do it before because there's a lot of Wrath of Khan and Cocoon um, there's a lot of everything in 
in his movies. I mean, Battle Beyond the Stars is essentially in is is Wrath of Khan. Um, you know, it's in Crawl. It's uh, you know, not very uh, much in Crawl, though. No, but Crawl is very much in, a is very unique. much a a a sibling to uh, Wrath of Khan. This there's it's a similar sounds and this. Sure, he has his own voice, but um, you know, every composer has borrowed something from the past and thrown it into into a a future score and like a production just Jean- that they've already done. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you can hear, um, you know, John Williams has done it, Jerry Goldsmith has done it, Danny Elfman has done it. They've all they've all done it, and but James Horner did it to a point where. He, he really didn't disguise what he was doing. And it became incredibly obvious that certain sequences were going to be scored this way and reusing this and reusing that. And the people who are against James Horner use that against him constantly. You know, he was a hack. He, he wasn't original, couldn't write his own music, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, the, the James Horner apologized Apologists um, are like, well, this is part of a larger tapestry. This was a career-long symphony. So if he was writing music for a science fiction film, then, of course, it's going to sound like his science fiction scores. Or, you know, he came up with the four-note danger motif. So for any sort of danger or or anything, you know, he'd bring up the four-note danger motif, which just was all over his scores throughout his entire career. Um... And, and, you know, that's, that's, or else he'll, you know, he'll bring up Prokofiev or he'll add this and that. It's who James Horner was. Um, I, you know, you can find Wrath of Khan in this. You can find Journey of Natigan in this. You can find 48 Hours in Aliens. You can find Wolfen in Aliens. You can find, you know, people think that he ripped off Star Wars with Bishop's Countdown. Um, You can hear... Uh, Kachatorin in in the main title, um, you can hear Goldsmith in this score, which is fine, but it's like a mismatch of 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 everything that kind of Horner had done to his career, and it's in this score. But I feel that when he brings these elements into a score like this or any score that he he's written, he definitely does give those scores its own kind of signature sound. I feel um, whether it's through re reorchestrating stuff that he's already done or, or, you know, kind of rearranging something that he's heard before. And, and, and I guess people would expect him to, you know, credit the people that he's been inspired by, you know, if he uses a classical piece of music in one of his scores, then obviously there should be some sort of, you know, notation or footnote saying, yeah, you know, he ripped it off of this, but all composers have their influences and, They've all used the piece from this and that into their scores. It just, it's, it's just the way it is. Uh, but as I said, Horner just did it so much more blatantly and so much more obvious that he got the most criticism. And so, um, yeah. And it also depends on when you first hear the, these pieces. Like Aliens is one of my very, very, very first James Horner scores. So I hear it and I think it's just like the freshest, most unique thing in the world. And then eventually one of these days I watch Wolfen on late night television and I'm like, hold on a minute. 
there's there's Ripley's rescue in Wolfen. Well, when was Wolfen written? Oh, it was written like five years before this film. I'm like, oh my god, what, what the heck is going on here? But <laughs> but James it's Horner. It's okay. I mean, it, it is. It's okay. It's uh, no. Everybody gets criticized for something, and I personally think, besides everything that I just said, that could be a fault. I think Aliens is one of the best things James Horner has ever done, even with all the time constraints, all the pressure, all the crap going on behind the scenes. I listened to this again, start to finish, and this is the deluxe edition album that came out from Verestereban back in the in the 90s. And personally, I think this is one of those rare complete scores that just holds up. Mm-hmm. On its own, it does. from start to finish. Yeah, and people might find that, and I've read it. You know, I'm like, oh, this is—it's boring. It's—it doesn't no. get to the action Mm-mm. quick enough. And I'm like, but I am a big fan of this type of music. I'm a huge fan of kind of dissonant, uh, atmospheric horror. But I'm not talking about just like kind of like droning cues or whatever. I, I want something interesting within that music, and I think that Horner, with all of his music, much like what John Williams does. It has motion. It has movement. It continuously moves on. There's only one drone cute in this uh, score. And yeah, it, and it, it doesn't unused. last. It lasts like under two minutes. It's the queen cue. It's an impressive piece of electronic droning, actually. It's really unique because it stays with the sound palette of the rest of the score. But besides that, the rest of it just... This goes by like a flash. And... And... Even, I mean, it's just so many great things about it. Like, even though James Horner was critical of Eric Tomlinson and the technology that was being used to record the score, that apparently, according to James Horner, you know, was way out of date, 30 years out of date, and they couldn't incorporate all the electronics that James Horner wanted to utilize in the score. Eric Tomlinson's recording is just masterful. The dynamic range on it is absolutely magnificent. I love this recording. And anything that Thomas had done with the LSO, I mean, probably past 1980, all sounded just great. But this just has so much body and oomph to it. But even once you get to the action music, this thing just, it just, it is aggressive. It's angry. It is, it's terrifying to the stings that Horner created for this uh you know for all of the jump scares uh, that 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 again it, i said it earlier that's a sound that stayed with me my whole entire life once i saw that and heard it for the first time when i saw the movie <laughs> that particular sound that could come up in a romantic comedy and still scare the bejesus out of me <laughs> it is it is awesome i absolutely love that sound and if i'm not mistaken I think they pop it in right at the la- at the end of this album. Just when you think that the album has ended, I think there's an alternate recording of a hyperspace. And it's kind of silent for a few seconds, and all of a sudden they yeah, give we'll you one last stinger. That. But they give you one last stinger as kind of like a surprise on the um, on the album, and I just I love it so much. So um, I think it's brilliantly crafted. I think for the pressure that James Horner was under that he managed to create so much great music, film music, is just a testament to his skills as a film composer. 
and to capture the the narrative, uh, the the heart of the story as well. That mother daughter relationship between Ripley and Newt is right in there in the score as well. To capture the the atmosphere of the planet, the 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 locations, the um, even the kind of like the badassery of the Marines. All of that is in this score, and again, for so little time that James Horner had to write it, I'm just completely in awe of what he was able to craft in such such little time and craft what I consider to be an absolute classic score. Yeah, and I mean, people can watch the documentary about his feelings on the movie on the scoring on the sessions with James Cameron on waiting around we don't need to go into that because that's not why we're here I mean James Horner had his issues with James Cameron we can call it that (laughs) so why don't we talk more on the actual cues that we're going to play today Um, let's start with combat drop Because, for instance, in the film, the music that plays during Combat Drop isn't on the original score. It is only on the Rez Saraband Deluxe Edition score. And nobody knew it existed until then. (laughs) Which is sad, because it's one of the most exhilarating cues that wasn't used. I mean, you know what I mean. The original recording, the the cue introduces those ideas of pure energy, uh, the loud and high bombastic motifs with the rapid snares, and uh, it was overlaid with trumpets and horns, and it just emerges with this vivid... Um, I think the notes that I had written down were like a vivid horn triplet motif that acts as a recurring idea for the Space Marines, which is cool. I think that's the best idea also when it's used even in Ripley's Rescue, which is also that exciting chase sequence uh, with the Space Marine motif uh, woven into that. I just, this cue is just super awesome. Um, And it should have been on the original album. Yeah, and I think the uh, on the original album, I think Dark Discoveries was on the original album. That's another cue that, well, that that cue actually comes from the the Newt and her family cutscene, and I but I think that was on the original album. Um, but Combat Drop, yeah, was replaced by a um, a, a Marshall snare piece by uh, Harry uh, Rabinowitz, and um, I don't know where you can find that, but. It's a it's an interesting contrast in style and, and tone for for this scene because Horner's piece uh, I would say some people might consider it to be just a bit over the top and not fitting for maybe what was tonally going on in the movie. This but it, it but it, what it represents it's a real raw raw let's get going marine type of cue that almost perfectly describes the kind of 80s action 
movie mentality um, that was going on around that time, where it's you know you know big men and, and lots of guns and you know everybody's going to kick butt and and so Horner plays kind of to that as a as a, a rousing call to arms, which is what Nick Redmond said um, in his uh, liner notes of the deluxe edition soundtrack. And that makes a lot of sense. I think compositionally it's fantastic. I love the way it builds. I I have seen the cue in picture, thank goodness, to that wonderful uh, Blue, Blu-ray Alien Quadrilogy set where you can watch the film with James Horner's isolated score as composed for the movie. And it is a um, just a masterclass in, in scoring. And, you know, once the, the ship drops, um, you know, Horner lets the, the, the symbols tail off and if I'm not mistaken it's a it's a bassoon that's just still holding a, a long note underneath it all kind of giving that sense of dread even though we've just heard this incredible um three and a half minute rah rah you know let's get going let's go kick some butt type of music um but I could see why it was I could see why it was taken away because the 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 the, the militaristic drums are just more simple and it uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't really call a whole lot of attention to itself and it just kind of fits the tone as to you know what they're going to see and, and kind of like the 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 unknown not knowing what they are going to see once they get down there so I think there's arguments for both but combat drop is is one of those great uh, rejected cues that I'm just so glad survived and that is available uh, for us to enjoy on Verez's incredible deluxe edition of the score. Yeah. So now let's play Combat Drop. Thank you. 
Next, let's get into a couple, like, kind of terrifying cues. <laughs> one being face huggers, and this one I just want to cover a little bit. Um, and then sub level three, I really want to pick this one apart. Uh, even though both of these are pretty massive cues, they're not short. Um, so face huggers, it was taken out entire or taken out of the soundtrack, and. It's one of the most horrifying and terrifying cues of the album. Um, it has those jump scare moments that you mentioned uh, that James Horner really performs really well. And it reminds me of the jump scares that you get in Alien. Because James Horner did utilize some of the original pieces of music from... Jerry Goldsmith uh, in Aliens, didn't he? There's certain, I guess, tonal um, sensibilities that definitely relate back to Alien. Like even the the opening of the film, the main title, it's it sounds just like Jerry Goldsmith. Um, the way that he uses kind of wild sound. Um, I love Horner's use of uh, the echoplex or the. Um, the, the kind of flute motif um, that uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith introduced in Alien as well. So, you know, I think James Horner was definitely uh, conscious of what Goldsmith had done previously and tried to incorporate what he could um, from Jerry Goldsmith's sound palette into this, even though this movie just takes on a totally different... Uh, uh, tone once once things get going, but the, there is definite similarities as as well. Yeah, and one thing that really gets me about this cue is the med lab scene and how sinister that scene really is and how terrifying it is because, you know, we had all, like, at this point in the Alien franchise... This is the second Alien film, and you didn't really see what the face huggers could do. Oh yeah, it's that's one of those great jump scares. Yeah. In the film, <laughs> and yeah, to see them moving around and 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 how they operate in their bio—well, not so much their biology, but how they—you know—you can see the their mouth, the sucker, the sucker, <laughs> and the and the and the curled tail, and how that wraps around your neck. Um, just get it back to just the face huggers for 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 one second, um, if you don't mind, because it's one of my favorite. That's fine. That's what we're the, still on on the album. Okay, good. Um, because just a note before even getting to that cue, f right after Ripley's rescue, um, the next three reels are unscored, completely unscored. Like James Horner, James Horner wrote no music for those for for anything that had come after that point. So it's just dialogue and sound effects, which again, that comes down to, well, I don't know. I don't know who I want to give, give credit to because it's great spotting. Silence or, or not having any music can be just as powerful as having music because once this sequence happens where Ripley and Neuter are locked in uh, the med lab and uh, the facehuggers are running loose and this is all because of... Uh, uh, Paul Reiser's character, um, 
Oh, what's his name? Um, Burke. That's it. Yeah. So we had no idea it was Burke's fault, but um, but yeah, he's trying to get an alien past quarantine. And uh, it's just too bad that the facehuggers queue was chopped up um, because again, this is one you can watch and see in its full um, in- entirety uh, on the isolated score, and it fits absolutely perfectly. And it's you know when they talk about James Horner not being original this is probably one of the most original pieces of music he's ever written and what i find absolutely fascinating is just the use of uh symbols as the device to to scare i mean there's a lot of low rumbling strings and 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 you know the the alien stingers that he has but there's a point where um he has these wonderful crescendos with the symbols and it's just utterly fascinating and it just annoys me to no end that this cue was was completely cut out because it's just one of the best and again and well and it's another cue that you had no idea really existed in this form until you heard the deluxe edition and it still remains to be one of the most terrifying uh cues i think i've heard in all of uh film music and um and uh, james horner just I mean, that's the testament to James Horner as well. I mean, this guy could write anything in any style, any genre, um, and he can do it just absolutely brilliantly. And when given a chance to, I mean, for the amount of time that he had to do this and for all the pressure that he was under just to craft something this great, um, it's incredibly uh, impressive. And I love, love the facehuggers cue. Yeah, it's fantastic. So now let's play that.
So next, uh, we have sub-level three. It's another piece of creepy ambient music that's not just a short cue. It's a full six and a half minutes of pure terror and weirdness with some really strange noises that are included in it. I found it um, very disturbing <laughs> when listening to it, uh, but I didn't, I didn't stop it. Like, I let the whole piece play through. And to me, this cue is the eeriness and pure horror that brings to my mind some of the music that was used in Psycho or another Alfred Hitchcock film because it brings some, again, original elements from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien, similar motifs, and even some sinister elements of weird instruments or even the use of maybe like metal sheets or some like strange rubs or scratches on some sort of surface. And no doubt probably James Horner wanted to use like synthetic or electronic elements uh, while still borrowing some original material from the film to tie in, I guess, good continuity for having it be a sequel. What are your thoughts? Yeah, sub-level three. A cue that just gets completely buried in the mix. It does, right? And is hardly used, and there's cues tracked from elsewhere. And But you're right, the, the instrumental innovation in this cue is nothing short of masterful. And it does create the perfect atmosphere and, and the perfect way of building to, which will eventually be the, you know, us seeing um, uh, one of the uh, citizens of LV-426 um, and ha having the chest burster burst out of her chest. Um, what I think is, I mean, everything you said is correct. The one thing that I want listeners to concentrate on, and, and you might have to turn the volume up a little bit, is just this this pulse that runs through almost the entire queue. And, you know, I've, I've read and you know, there's people are like, oh, this is so boring. It's just droning. It's just, but the pulse, again, as I said, gives this cue forward momentum. And then there's just a whole bunch of eerie sounds that will pop up here and there to match certain sync points in the film, but that pulse is your heartbeat. That's, that's your heart racing. Um, that is the nervousness of the Marines as they are going into the unknown. They have no idea what is happening here. They don't know why all of the, uh, the civilians are gathered in one spot. And, um, and as they go deeper and deeper into this, this hive, Horner's just, building on this suspense and he's just absolutely manipulating you as an audience member and it is it is some masterful scoring that doesn't have to be overly complex to do what it does again and I take this from Austin Wintory it's simple music but it's not simplistic um it, there is some genuine thought that has gone into this cue 
to make sure it does what it needs to do. And it's not just a simple laying down of, um, of a pad of, of sounds, which anybody can do, and you could probably come up with the same effect. But James Horner just adds a bit extra to it to really put you on edge. And that's what masterful film composers do. James Horner was a masterful film composer. He was a masterful emotional manipulator. And he could do it in any genre. And this is, again, one of those cues that just sets you up for terror. And um, it's, again, so sad that this thing, this cue just got absolutely buried and chopped up into into bits. Um, but it's, um, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I agree. I think it's uh, really a unique uh, piece of music. So now, let's go ahead and play sub-level three.
so now we're talking about futile escape. Um, to me, <laughs> this is something that I just wrote down as I was listening to the cue. Uh, Two-thirds of the cue were taken out from the film in place of silence or ambience from other cues to be cut into this scene. Uh, it was militaristic in nature to begin, but then it slowly builds to the bombastic themes for the combat marines that help Ripley and Newt try to escape uh, with the infestation of the aliens at the complex. And there's really rapid pace percussion motifs and it increases the tension. Um, yes, we hear borrowed pieces of from Ratha Khan, like Battle on the Mutara Nebula, but this is another cue that is a really long piece of music, but it was chopped in the film, and it's over eight minutes long of pure Horner magic that in cue includes some unique electronic and practical use of sounds through the cue. Now, what are your thoughts, Eric? Yeah, this is another one that just in the movie is just picked to sh shreds and, and I think there's about four or five different cues from different places in the movie that take its place. And interestingly enough, again, going through uh, Nick Redmond's liner notes, that this cue is featured in Ripley's Rescue, and yet portions of Ripley's Rescue are in Futile Escape, which just makes absolutely no sense to me and the first what like half of this cue all that great build-up um you know the stuff that comes straight out of uh the alley cue from uh 48 hours which again i had no idea that that's where this music came from until a couple of weeks ago until i finally saw 48 hours and i'm like hold on a minute that alley music is 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 in aliens It's, it's fantastic, and, and and it's only featured like only a few times in in, in the alley in, in Forty Eight Hours. So it was great that Horner could kind of flesh it out in this queue, even though it was essentially thrown out in the film. But yeah, the Horner's a genius when it comes down to these long, long tracks. And you know, as you go further on into his career, he wrote some absolute monsters um, that would last 14, 15, 16 minutes long. A lot of these long cues that he eventually end up writing were like the finale cues that went into the end credits. But, uh, you know, this is another uh, just brilliant piece of action scoring by James Horner. And it just, it's, um, it just keeps going. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't give up and it doesn't let you breathe. And uh, yeah, one of my favorite cues on the album as well. Yeah, so let's go ahead and play Futile Escape. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so next, we're looking at Bishop's Countdown. This is the cue of all action cues. This piece of music really becomes a staple in films, even from the point that it's played in this film to the future of film music. Um, to me, the intense action writing for this cue has helped shape action music forever through the future of film music. I'm sure that there's even classes or, you know, a class that's taken to focus on this one cue alone to illustrate how one cue can change the world of film music to me. Um, <laughs> the high intensity percussion, loud horns, metal clanking noises, um, even the hyper pace of the violins really carry this cue to its crescendo. And films like Stargate, future Star Wars movies, Star Trek, space movies, Valerian, City of the Thousand Planets, the Fast and the Furious films, various action movies have utilized this cue as a model to orchestrate it different ways with different flares uh, with the same model of brilliant action writing. And it's been used even in countless... I mean, you can pull up any future uh, trailer from after 1986 for an action film, and you can probably hear Bishop's Countdown in the trailer because it gained so much praise the world over. Now, do you agree with that, or am I just blowing smoke out of my ears? No, it's... Um... It's a, it's a legendary cue that you're right. It was a trailer staple, um, and uh, you know when it comes down to modern action scoring, you know this is a, a, a perfect template blueprint for, for how to do it. And of course, the story behind the creation of the the cue is is pretty incredible too, because you know Horner was coming down to just the, the last few days of scoring this movie and they still didn't have the ending and, and when they handed him the ending and he started writing music to it, you know, when it came down to to actually record the cue you know, like what was happening throughout the whole film um, the scene changed, so the timing changed and, you know, Horner um, like any good film composer at that point in time you know there's certain things you have to match there's there's certain timings that have to fit you just can't somehow try to fit a two minute cue into a space of 90 seconds or you know vice versa you know write a short cue but then try to fit it into a, a longer scene so you know Horner had been thinking about this cue for, for, for a few days but it was really like the last second and essentially overnight and, and coming off of a time when Horner was essentially working around the clock. And he is, and the thing about this score is that he, he, Horner was there in London. You know, he traveled to London and wanted to be with the, with, the, with the production while they were working. And he thought he gave himself enough time, which I think it was about six weeks, to hopefully see the film, write the score, and get it recorded. And it just turned out to be a nightmare. And so, yeah, one of the last 
at days, I guess, he wrote this cue and brought it to the London Symphony and they performed it. And yeah, it's amazing what happens when you're under pressure. And 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 to the point where nobody can really change what you do. I mean, you, you can't. You, you you have to deliver a movie, and you have to deliver a score, and this is what you got. And I I don't know what inspired him to do it. I mean, some have said that you know the the latter portions of this with those real kind of like um, those huge uh, orchestral hits, which essentially comes out of Gustav Holtz. And, and later on, you can hear it in Williams's score to Star Wars just before the Death Star explodes. But the, everything before it is sensational. The buildup to the explosion on the planet as Bishop Ripley, Hicks, and Newt, you know, blast off into space to get away from this exploding um, atmosphere station. There's... There's really nothing like it. And there, as you said, there have been dozens upon dozens of imitators out there. And you can find similar cues written by composers from 1986 even to now, where they've done this same thing. And it's incredibly effective. It is one of the most, I think, influential cues ever written. And again, to say that, you know, Horner was just copying this and copying that and he had no originality all you have to do is just this play would Bishop's prove Countdown them wrong. Yep. that's exactly <laughs> it it's a, it's a legendary cue for a reason and yes uh, you would put a lot of credit on to its use in trailer music but that's just how effective a piece of music um, this is and it's a, a career best one of the best that uh, Horner ever crafted alright so let's Play Bishop's Countdown.
The last thing we're going to look at today is resolution in hyperspace. Uh, the quiet horns, they make you feel calm and at peace, like everything's going to be okay. Um, even though the idea that things are not completely resolved. There's elements here that don't stop. It leaves you wondering the question as to what will happen next. There's even a repeating toward thoughts of the cue that Jerry Goldsmith composed, which was hypersleep. And that's a totally different type of cue, but it was used in this ultimately as the other cue that was the main theme uh, by Goldsmith. But we still get um, what Horner spent a lot of his waking hours to construct the last piece of this score. And in some ways, I think he was kind of cheated uh, out of using motifs and elements from previous scores. But uh, this cue is sinister dark, not welcoming, and certainly not resolved. What are your thoughts, Eric? Yeah, this is, um, this is a legendary cue. Actually, the first part of it is legendary cue for a whole other reason. Because <laughs> the resolution portion um, plays just as Ripley is jettisoning the alien out of the airlock. And in the movie, um, Bishop's Countdown is reused again. And I think that was a huge mistake. Resolution, the resolution portion of this, this that big, uh, gigantic orchestral uh, bit of this cue, I think is sensational and, and works. And again, you can hear how it sounds on the isolated score on the, uh, the Blu-ray edition of this film. Uh, what makes the resolution portion of this cue so legendary is that even though it wasn't used in Aliens, most film music fans know where it comes from. And we first heard it in a film, which was called Die Hard. And so right at the end of that movie, um, you know, we hear the resolution cue from James Horner. Hello, Holly. You got yourself a good man. You take good care of him. McLean, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to debrief. I want to debrief. You got some things to answer for, Mister. Alice's murder, for one thing. Property damage, interfering with police business. It's a very triumphant, heroic uh, cue, which I think is, is absolutely fitting in this scene for aliens, because uh, you know 
Ripley is saving not only herself, but also Newt as well, and who she's um, essentially fallen in love with and is adopted as her as her own. And even Newt yells out, Mommy, um, as um, you know, everything ends here. And it's all very, very, very touching and sweet and um, kind of resolves uh, Ripley's loss of her own daughter because of course this film takes place what 57, 57 years, years later yeah after alien and we find out that she's had a daughter well i think we knew about do we know about a daughter in the in alien no it, well, we only yeah. find out about the daughter in the second one so yeah ripley's daughter's passed away and in this movie and uh so newt basically takes takes her place one thing i want to note about this though is even though we don't get a resolution with Alien 3. You know, we, like, between Aliens and Alien 3, not that we're going into Alien 3 right now, but just explaining something is that we didn't know what was going to happen after Aliens. And writers who mainly write for comics uh, were able to take the idea that Newt went on to have her own story uh, outside of being with Ripley. But she fell in love. She found out that her lover was a cyborg. And that was all through Dark Horse Comics. And Dark Horse owned the rights to Alien for comic writing, uh, which was pretty cool because they did some really good stories out of that uh, line and this was it was almost like a what if what if Newt went on to have her own story after this film and I, I just found that really unique uh, it has no place in the film scoring world but uh, for storytelling I think it's really unique Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> well, no, but I think that those who are unhappy with, you know, Hicks's and Newt's fate in Alien 3, I guess, would find some sort of resolution in reading those alternate stories in the comic books. Um, again, in 1986, we had no idea whether this series was going to continue. I mean, we had no idea whether it was going to be any, like a sequel to Alien, since that's a perfect film as it is, and it really didn't need a sequel, but... Thank goodness we got one, and it was a smart sequel, one of the best sequels ever made. You know, I'm I'm one that is a fan of Alien Three, so I don't mind what happened. Um, but I think that the way that this ended is 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 fine. Um, it's a, it's a nice, happy ending. And um, you know, as we get into the hyperspace portion of the queue, which then resolves into the end credits, um, uh, basically Horner reprises his main title music. Which is which is fine, and it, it, it all ends off in a very kind of tender moment with a bit of uncertainty near the end of the queue. Although there is a longer version of the hyperspace queue that is on the album, and from what I've read, it was composed. Um, there's it's a bit longer because again, Horner had no idea how long things are going to be, so there was this longer track um, that could have been used in the place of what was eventually uh, recorded with the resolution portion of the of the queue. And what's really neat, though, is if you are listening to the 
Aliens soundtrack. Uh, don't doze off when you get near the end. Uh, Randy and I were just uh, we just experienced it here um, a couple of minutes ago because I wanted to go back and listen to the hyperspace cue and I also wanted to. This was off. Recording. This was off air. Yeah, when, <laughs> and then I wanted to tell Randy that I mean I remember at the end of this album. And again, I'm not sure whether it was actually part of the queue and whether this is the way the queue was supposed to end, this is the way the end credits were supposed to end, or whether this is something that Robert Townsend and Nick Redman uh, put on the end of the album just for, you know, a, a gag. But right at the last um, 30 seconds of the hyperspace alternate queue, well, there's a bit of a break, and you're kind of wondering, well, how come this track hasn't ended yet? Well, they insert two of James Horner's stingers, um, that kind of high piccolo... Um, uh, screeching uh, bass drum uh, whatever that sound is to the jump scare stinger and it's not on there once but it's on there twice and it is loud and it freaks you out so as I said don't fall asleep listening to this no. album because that will you'll jump a million miles Wake in the you air up. <laughs> but I love the way that it ends it's a great little um, it's a great little easter egg much like the, the whispering that you hear on the uh, deluxe edition of the Omen 3, the Final Conflict album. When that album ends, all of a sudden, you know, 20 seconds later, you can hear whispering. And it's really, really creepy. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, it's, it's unfortunate the resolution portion of this cue was not used. And that they had to resort to Bishop's Countdown, and and especially you know after you've just heard Bishop's Countdown five minutes earlier, um, it's uh, it's too bad that they had to track it um, because the resolution actually really works. It really works. It's really powerful, and it fits Ripley the character and its scene at the. And, and, and it's a very unique uh, piece, and it should have been left alone. Totally. So um, we're at an end of soundtrack alley once again like to thank alexander shebel for composing soundtrack alley's theme music uh you can find his work at xanderscores.com check out all the programming at cinematic sound radio on the network eric why don't you tell us a little bit about some new things that have happened with cinematic sound Holy smokes, a lot has happened. Um, if you like horror music, which we just all happen to be talking about right now, we've uh, introduced a new show called Scored to Death, uh, the Scored to Death Radio, uh, with host uh, J. Blake Fischera. He's the author of the Scored to Death books, where he interviews uh, some of horror's best composers. And he's had a podcast for a while. Uh, he has Scored to Death, the podcast where he interviews uh, horror composers and various other composers and he's has other podcasts and things of that sort but he's wanted to do a horror music show and he had on other networks but uh, those had since gone away and so he came to me and asked if there was a place for his show so that premiered uh, recently and of course if you're interested in supporting the program well your dream has come true as there is now a uh, Patreon for Cinematic Sound Radio. And uh, for as little as $1, you can help support the show. And that way we can, um, you know, pay for things like the the web server, um, our licensing to SoCan, and uh, various other things that uh, will help make Cinematic Sound uh, bigger and better. And we uh, thank 
everyone who has supported the show up to this point. Exactly. Um, I, I love how you've plugged that because it's so important for the listeners of Cinematic Sound to be able to support the show. And uh, not only do we as different hosts on the network support it by doing shows, uh, but we can tell others about Cinematic Sound. And that's the cool part. I really love that. Um, yeah, it's really great because, because, you know, it's, it's not something that I expect. I mean, it's, it's something that has been brought to my attention by listeners and they're like, how can we, you know, help, help keep this going? And I'm like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't cost a lot of money to run cinematic sound, but yeah, I mean, there are bills, there are bills to pay and I've been paying them for 20 some odd years. But if somebody, if somebody like enjoys the programming and feels so inclined to, no, I'm not forcing anybody to do this, then you can. And the cool thing about Patreon is there are um, some great rewards and exclusives um, for, for spending your money. And, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, we're going to be doing um, at least bi-monthly um, all request shows that it's going to be Patreon only. Um, we're doing a couple of shows that are going to be programmed by listeners who supported Patreon. Um, I, the, the two top tiers are gone, which are co-hosting a show with me. So, um, I mean, if you're interested in co-hosting a show with me, I mean, ask me and I'll see if I can put some more um, tiers and make those available. But it was supposed to be limited edition. And I never thought anybody would buy that. But um, well, I'm going to be doing shows with the fans. So if you want to get on the program and talk with me and or heck, you know, what? if you say, forget Eric, I want to talk to one of the other hosts, then fine. It's all there. And then yeah, you, you can hear talk somebody, with me. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody wants to talk to Randy, well, let me know. I'll open up a tier and, and, and you can get involved. And, and I appreciate anything. Like I said, even a, even the, the $1 tier, which is like, thank you very much. Um, I, I don't expect this, but it's just great to know that there are people out there that want to want to help us out and, and keep us going and, and make us better than what we already are. Exactly. Thank you, Eric, for giving us that great plug for Cinematic Sound and for Patreon and for my show, <laughs> Soundtrack Alley. And then also you can check out Anime Spectacular. And over on SoundtrackAlley.com, you can catch the short little show that I've been putting together called Q Perception. It's kind of an examination of one Q about every two weeks and I hope people are enjoying that show. So without further ado, uh, to end the show, we're going to play Resolution in Hyperspace. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.